Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, if the hospital is at capacity with the latest COVID surge, does that mean patients are being turned away? And what would happen in the event of a major emergency like last weekend's tornado outbreak? Also this morning, millions of kids will get their first smartphone for Christmas, but with great power comes great responsibility. We have advice for families on setting the rules of the road. Take a deep breath. We have some stress-free gift ideas to help take the hectic out of the holiday crunch for shopping procrastinators. And in our Throwback Thursday segment this morning, reflections on a COVID Christmas. Should the effect of the pandemic serve as a metaphor for contemplating the true meaning of the season? This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, December 16th, 2021. Today is Barbie and Barney Backlash Day. <laughs> Barbie and Barney Backlash Day. Uh, for any parent, you know who you are, who has bought a Barbie or a Barney toy for their kids for Christmas, is begrudgingly put it in their shopping cart. <laughs> oh, I guess I got to do this. You didn't really want to. This is your day. Barbie and Barney Backlash Day. It is Boston Tea Party Day. It was on this date in 1773. The Boston Tea Party took place. A protest of uh, Britain's taxation of tea in the colonies. Uh, taxation without representation. And uh, thus, uh, the uh, revolution, American Revolution movement was underway. National Chocolate Covered Anything Day. And it is Stupid Toy Day. Stupid Toy Day, which kind of goes hand in hand with Barbie and Barney Backlash Day, doesn't it? There you go. Some of the reasons to celebrate today. A follow-up of a story that we mentioned yesterday to start off the program. Some Democratic lawmakers, including Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, are now urging President Biden to once again extend the nearly two-year freeze on federal student loan payments. We mentioned yesterday, this is set to expire next month. Uh, Payments and interest to resume on February 1st. But those who want yet another extension argue that letting the freeze end would hurt families and the economic recovery. Um, Now, it also should be pointed out that there are some within the Democratic Party who want to cancel large amounts of student loan debt altogether. And uh, they've been pushing for that for a number of months. Um, Even before the pandemic, they've been calling for that. And there are others that are uh, asking for a sort of a compromise between resuming the payments and another extension Perhaps uh, keeping the interest rates at zero while allowing monthly payments to resume. So Congress suspended the monthly loan payments and interest back in March of 2020, and both the Trump and Biden administrations uh, used executive action to extend it. But uh, it is set to expire the end of January, and so those uh, first student loan bills in something like two years, going to be hitting mailboxes very soon, unless something changes. And there is a move afoot 
to further extend the moratorium. Another follow-up, another story that we were talking about, I think, uh, day before yesterday, maybe. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi yesterday rejected calls for lawmakers to be banned from trading stocks. Now, critics contend allowing members of Congress to trade stocks allow them to profit from inside information they obtain because of their official duties. And as an example, they cite the fact that some lawmakers made suspiciously timed trades at the start of the pandemic before the extent of what was coming was more widely known. Um, Now, even though there have been investigations into this, as of now, no one has been charged as a result. Uh, And uh, Speaker Pelosi told reporters yesterday when asked about the idea of banning members of Congress from stock trading altogether, she said, we are a free market economy and they should be able to participate in that. Now, it should be noted that uh, Speaker Pelosi herself does not own any stock, but her husband has tens of millions of dollars worth of stocks and stock options. Now, there is such a thing as the Stock Act, which was uh, passed back in 2012, that does prohibit members of Congress from using inside information to make investment decisions, just like it uh, prohibits those in the know on Wall Street from using insider information. And... uh, The Stock Act that applies to members of Congress also requires that all trades be reported within 45 days. Uh, No one has been prosecuted under that act, uh, even though some lawmakers have failed to report their trades as required. But this would go one step further. There are calls to go one step further and just ban members of Congress from owning stock altogether. And there is an argument to be made that... uh, they have access to a lot more insider information than maybe even or a different type of insider information than maybe even Wall Street insiders. And so some special circumstances should apply. I don't know if that's got any legs, if it's going anywhere, but that was what Nancy Pelosi said about it yesterday. That was kind of interesting. And again, a follow up. We were talking about the story. Uh, a couple of days ago on the program. A couple of other things among the first things you need to know this morning. The most uh, buzzworthy stories of the day. You know, um, during the course of the pandemic, uh, especially over 2021, one of the big story, uh, one of the big stories in business has been the quits rate. Number of people quitting their jobs in record numbers. 4.3 million Americans in the month of August, which was the biggest month for quits. It was 4.3 million Americans quit their job in August alone. It was kind of the height of it. And employees now, this is the story that I saw on the Newswire this morning. I thought it kind of gave me a chuckle. Employees are getting creative with putting in their notice. <laughs> Instead of just writing a letter of resignation or having a meeting with the boss, that's kind of the standard way of turning in your notice, right? But that's boring. I mean, who wants to do that? One new trend is making its way around social media. Now, we mentioned, again, this is something we were talking about earlier in the week. The quit talks on TikTok. People are filming their resignations <laughs> and posting on social media. They call it, they have a name for it. Quit talks. This is quitting on TikTok. Quit talks. Um, here's another trend that's making its way around social media. Hiring a celebrity to quit for you. <laughs> Uh, people have actually called on 
celebrities to quit on their behalf. And some celebrities are renting themselves out. This is actually not a new trend necessarily. Um, celebrities since the dawn of social media figured out that they can actually charge everyday ordinary people to make custom videos uh, for them. And so they've been doing that. Now uh, folks have, have taken that to hire celebrities to quit their job on their behalf. And celebrities are charging anywhere from $5 to $2,500 for the videos, uh, depending on the celebrity. I mean, somebody who's only mildly famous might only charge five or 10 bucks. If you're looking for an A-lister, you're going to pay 2500 or more. Now, if you're thinking of leaving your job, you want to step up your resigning game, <laughs> think out of the box. <laughs> Would you like to hire George Clooney to quit on your behalf? <laughs> oh, that's funny. I think that's a quick, clever idea there. Here is the uh, latest shortage, pandemic-related shortage uh, to uh, hit the nation. It is a perilous cream cheese shortage that has struck America. And to counter it, Kraft, the makers of Philadelphia cream cheese, uh, is offering to give $20 for dessert supplies to help customers who are unable to make cheesecake due to the shortage of cream cheese this season. The first 18,000 people to register this weekend can apply for the vouchers designed to ease consumer concerns over the shortage of Philly. Yeah. <laughs> now, does that mean they're paying people not to make cre uh, cheesecake this year uh, to alleviate the shortage? Is that that's kind of what I'm taking from this. You can get a voucher uh, for cream cheese later if you agree to postpone your cheesecake making. So that you can alleviate the shortage. I think that's the long and short of it there. <laughs> Once again, they're just bribing us. They're just bribing us. That's what it is. Bribery. And uh, finally, among the uh, first things that you need to know this morning. A, uh, a new. This is this day's news of most lasting significance. Could be this. A report published in the New Scientist. Is revealing the story of a ping pong playing robot. You heard correctly, I said a ping-pong-playing robot. Researchers at the University of Tübingen, Tübingen in Germany used an algorithm to teach a robotic arm to play ping-pong. And they said it only took about 90 minutes to master the game through both virtual and physical training. A combination of cameras and an algorithm using trial and error to calculate the position of... The back and forth and racket position and how to hold the racket and all of that is what has allowed this robot to learn through artificial intelligence the game of ping pong. One of the researchers said the robot's skills were in just an hour and a half already on par with his. We are doomed. <laughs> Mankind is doomed. They're teaching robots to play ping pong and they're picking it up. In no time at all, it's just another example. Humankind is doomed. There you go. Some of the uh, most uh, interesting and buzzworthy stories, <laughs> for what it's worth, to get your Thursday morning started.
WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast. Rainy and windy today with a high of 61. Partly cloudy tonight, a low of 30. Blanchard Valley Health System held an online update on the impact of rising COVID cases in the community. Dr. Renee Smith says around 80% of the COVID patients they're seeing are unvaccinated. We are seeing that the vaccine is helping to keep people out of the hospital. Um, And so, again, we're strongly encouraging our patients and our community members to get the vaccine. And she says the average age of their COVID patients went down from 70 last year to around 61 this year. You can see BVHS's latest online COVID update on our website. A new bill called the Grow Ohio Act aims to incentivize people to go to college in Ohio and work here once they graduate. State Representative John Cross says right now they don't know how much this program would cost, but he says the state can't afford to do nothing. I don't believe that's going to cost the state because if we didn't keep those students here, we would have lost that revenue regardless. The plan also includes a merit-based scholarships for out-of-state students and a refundable credit for Ohio employers to offer paid internships. Cross hopes that bill will be approved by next year. ONN's Andrew Kinsey reporting. Get more on the Grow Ohio Act on our website. An Ohio State University coach is among those who've donated to a telethon for tornado victims. Proceeds from the Kentucky United for Tornado Relief Telethon will go to the American Red Cross. Donations had reached $3 million with more coming in. The total included $50,000 from Ohio State men's basketball coach Chris Holtman, a Nicholasville, Kentucky native. Athletic Director Mitch Barnhart said in a release that it shows the special bond that exists throughout the people of the Commonwealth. Daniel Barnett, ONN News. The Marion Township trustees will be holding a COVID-19 test kit giveaway at the Township House on State Route 568, a little east of Findlay. The free kits will be available today from 4 to 6 p.m. and on Saturday from 8 to 10 a.m. or until supplies run out. Hancock Public Health is providing the kits in an effort to encourage people to get tested for COVID before attending any Christmas gatherings. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. And now our cover story this morning. Yesterday, Blanchard Valley Health System held another Facebook Live event on the status of the pandemic locally. Dr. Bill Coase, Blanchard Valley Health System, is with us on the line this morning. And Dr. Coase, for those who uh, perhaps were not able to view it, and I know the uh, replay is uh, is still up there on your uh, Facebook page, so folks can go back and, and view it. But for those who were not able to sit in on that uh, Facebook Live event, kind of recap some of the highlights for us, first of all. Uh, well, good morning, Chris, and thanks for the opportunity to share with uh, all of your listeners. I think um, where what we tried to convey is uh, where we are in the pandemic as we have become busier we're certainly available. Uh, we're taking care of all of our patients. Um, I think the message that we'd like to send is that we are uh, really quite busy. I need to be a little more patient than maybe what would have been in the past as far as how long it will take to get seen. The emergency room has been backed up, and we are certainly seeing more individuals that have COVID at a younger age. Uh, and our message has been uh, really pretty consistent, uh, continual, that uh, vaccines really do work. Uh, they're safe. Uh, they're effective. We encourage everyone to get those. In addition to, if it's been six months or so, a booster uh, would be indicated for just what's being seen. And then the other things that we talked about, uh, a lot of questions about what's going to happen with Omicron, mm-hmm. uh, the Delta variants and those sort of things. Yeah. And, 
a lot of that's hypothetical. We're not sure what's going to happen, but there is concern. Uh, with respect to that capacity issue, uh, that was one of the things that we wanted to ask. We, we've heard reports that the hospital is, quote-unquote, at capacity. What exactly does that mean? Because, as I understand it, that's kind of a, a moving target. That's a, a varying number. And as you indicated, that doesn't necessarily mean you're turning patients away. That's correct. So we are seeing everyone. Now, at a, at a high level, there's hospitals across the country, especially in north, northern, northwest part of Ohio, are at, quote, a capacity level of the number of beds that they have. So in our specific case, we are waiting for individuals to go home or to be transferred to skilled care nursing homes so we can fill the beds. Uh, invariably in the morning we'll have five uh, a couple of days ago we had up to 20 people that were waiting for beds but we do have the capacity then during the day to move them in mm-hmm. we have shifted around some of our rooms so that we have more capacity uh, we're we're able now with uh, the negative pressure rooms that we built last year to be able to take care of those but we're we're pretty much back up to the numbers that we were seeing uh, at the beginning of the year when the pandemic seemed to be at, at its highest. So there, there isn't a problem of getting taken care of. Now, we're also going into the holiday season and uh, trying to figure out with vacations and people have planned on doing things that we've got to make sure that we have our staffing. But overall, we're, we're able to take care of people, uh, especially when they have emergencies or urgent things need to be taken care of. Well, you talk about uh, the availability of treatment and so on. Many of the same things that we are hearing now about high community spread and the strain on the system are, as you pointed out, as you were indicating, the same things that we heard a year ago. Have we made any progress or are we back where we started with this whole thing? Well, I think I think that we know a lot more about the disease, about what we've seen. And I think the vaccines really have helped. Now, this Delta and, and what may occur with Omicron seems to be more contagious, maybe not uh, as, let's say, life-threatening. I think that remains to be seen. So we've learned how to take care of people, how we can get people to, to go home, let's say, quicker or to be watched at home. As far as we've learned about the disease, we've made some strides in treatment with the monoclonal vaccine. When someone's eligible for that, the elderly and those with immune uh, problems, but as far as the capacity part, when you get to those numbers, it's about the same. So we have 140 beds uh, plus OB, uh, obstetrics, and, and psychiatry. And when you get to those numbers, you're back to where you were. Originally, one of our big problems was protective devices. We didn't have an, enough of those things. We have the same problem here that businesses do across the country. Uh, we're we're concerned about gloves. We're concerned about getting supplies. Are things left on boats? Are we not globally able to get things? And we've our, our group has done a great job of keeping track of that. We share with other hospitals when we have problems, but that's, that's a different problem than what we had a year ago is mm-hmm. what the supplies were, but it's still it's it's a continual problem, something we need to be looking at. Yeah. Uh, as we were saying, uh, the term at capacity is sort of a uh, moving target, if you will. And uh, as you were saying, you're not to the point uh, where you have to turn people away or not able to treat people. But theoretically, could you get to that 
uh, situation. I mean, I'm thinking uh, particularly after the uh, tornado outbreak in Kentucky and Illinois and elsewhere over the weekend, the point was made that the hospitals there were struggling because they, too, were already full. So what would some kind of large scale emergency mean for Blanchard Valley Health System? So that, that is a great question. In general, when a disaster occurs, the disaster's not everywhere. And so capacity, if we were to have a disaster like a bad tornado, using that as an example, mm-hmm. we would theoretically, let's say in the past, be able to transfer to other places. We practice disasters, work with communities. Northwest Ohio has a really active program of where we look at those things. The problem is now we wouldn't have a place to be able to transport a lot of people if we added an acute disaster on top of what's an epidemic. However, on the other side of that, we have learned a lot from this pandemic working in the community. Um, A year ago, year and a half ago, there was a concern that we could get to numbers of three or 400 people. Now, we didn't realistically think that was going to happen, but you plan for the worst and hope for the best. Right. And we had plans so we could open up other areas. And we talked to the university, we talked to hotels, we've talked to <clears throat> to the city missions and all mm-hmm. of those kind of places of where would there be beds if we needed something for capacity. Part of the problem would be medications, doctors, and those things. But we do have some plans if we would get to that that I think we've at least thought about it and how that's going to occur. Yeah, very easy to think that a a big emergency like that won't happen, and it is obviously unlikely, but you still have to prepare for the worst, as you said, and uh, under all kinds of conditions, as we saw over this past weekend, it certainly uh, is possible. And lastly, just in the minute or so that we have uh, remaining here, I want to touch on this. Across the country, hospital staff, those frontline workers, are stressed to the breaking point. We've heard a number of stories. Uh, from all over the country. What can you tell us about the uh, kind of the conditions uh, with respect to that uh, at the hospital here? Yeah, another, Chris, a a really great question. Uh, We would be, I think, like most of the hospitals in the country, uh, it's been difficult for everyone that's involved in healthcare. One, because you're seeing the exposure uh, daily, I think we understand the disease better than what we did before, but you were putting your life at risk, and then you were going to be taking uh, those things home. So the issue of um, <clears throat> just behavioral mental health, and which some people are calling burnout, but mm-hmm. it's really bigger than that. That's one. Secondly, a lot of people took, and we saw some of that here too, across healthcare, frontline staff, nursing, physicians, decided to retire maybe earlier than what they thought. They were able to do that and had continued to work. And then the other thing is because it's everywhere, it's been very difficult to recruit to get new people, Mm -hmm. which then adds stress to the front line because you asked to work overtime. Uh, We've got the holidays coming up. And then I'm especially uh, concerned just in, again, in general, not just here about our managers and directors. I mean, we, we literally have, individuals that are coming in and making beds or moving and doing things in in addition to trying to do their daytime job of managing and uh, being able to take care of what's going on in the pandemic. So I'm really proud of what our medical staff, our frontline staff, our directors, all of the things that that they've been able to do. 
And again, using hope uh, that we can get through the holidays, hopefully that we're not going to see like what we've seen after Thanksgiving, a bump in January uh, Mm -hmm. of any significant amount, and that this will stabilize or plateau as we get into the first quarter of 22. We will leave it there again. As we mentioned, uh, Blanchard Valley Health System held another Facebook Live event on the status of the pandemic locally. If you would like to view that event, it is uh, uh, archived on their uh, Facebook page, which we have linked up at goodmornings.net. Dr. Bill Coase, thanks very much once again for the uh, update. We appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Millions of kids will receive their first digital device this Christmas, and with it comes a whole host of potential dangers and pitfalls that children and parents going to have to navigate. Sean Clifford is the founder of Canopy, which is an app that helps control access to internet content in order to help keep kids safe online. And Sean, as a recent New York Times piece put it, the most dangerous toy out there for kids is the internet. And is that really maybe part of the problem that too many young people going to see the internet as a toy? I think it is. The internet is, for your average American teenager and even younger ages, become a core element of their social life. It's where they go to learn. It's where they go to have fun, like a toy. And it's also where they go to socialize. Yeah. And that's good, especially during the pandemic. It's helped them navigate being locked down and isolated. But it also brings a host of dangers. And in our early infatuation with our smart devices, I think we overlook them. The research is now out. We've got this massive social experiment. And it can be pretty problematic for kids. So we've got to figure that part out. And that canopy is what we're trying to do. Yeah. And and you point out, it's not like kids have no experience with accessing the internet and digital media these days, but it is different when they have their own device. Now, the first things that, that come to mind when you talk about the dangers of the internet are uh, the big ones, the online predators, the human traffickers, the pornography. Uh, this, our minds immediately kind of think of the worst, and those uh, threats are certainly out there. But you point out that there are many different threats and that they are constantly evolving. Yeah, it's, it's a host of issues. So whether this is tech addiction, 50% of American kids report that they themselves are addicted to tech to the anxiety and depression that comes from uh, spending a lot of time on social media where your popularity, there's actually a dashboard, and you can see in real time how many people are liking your posts or your photos. Uh, and kids are looking to that for self-validation. So those are some of the big ones. The one that we at Canopy care the most about is pornography. And part of that is it's just completely different from what any prior generations have encountered. Today, your average American child will be exposed before they turn 10 years old, which is just crazy. Yeah. They'll see hardcore porn before they have their first kiss, and it's shaping what they think about sex, intimacy, healthy relationships. And the earlier they see it, when your brain is still developing, it just works its number on you in a different way. So we think it's uh, terrifying what's happening, and we've got to take steps on all these issues. But on that one in particular, we've got to figure something out. So your platform is one of many, uh, frankly, that attempt to make the Internet uh, a little safer uh, for kids. How? The way that we go about it is, Look, the internet is dynamic. It's fast-paced, it's changing, new content's appearing all the time. The only way that we think you can really safeguard kids is to have a tool that's as dynamic as the internet itself. To do that, we've trained artificial intelligence to identify uh, explicit content, images and videos, in real time. 
So someone can post a brand new website five seconds ago that contains pornography. Our software will catch that. Someone can post something benign on Twitter and something explicit on Twitter. Our software is the only one out there that can block the bad thing but still serve up the good. So we really needed to get, if tech exacerbated these problems for us, we needed tech that actually works for us, for the family, to give parents and kids more control over what we consume. So that's how we're trying to go about it. There's a lot of other issues out there, screen time, things like that. And uh, I think a lot of good effort is being poured into this. But the one we care about, pornography, sexting, um, you've got to have a tech forward solution. Uh, it brings up a, a point uh, like you were uh, mentioning, and I, I think it's worth underscoring, just like we don't want to rely solely on a vaccine to protect us from the coronavirus there. We don't want to rely on any uh, uh, any platform exclusively to protect us from the bad stuff that's online. There are other steps and safeguards that families should take as well. Right. Absolutely. And I, it's it's such an important point. I think our technology is amazing. I truly do. But there's no silver bullet out there. The only way that a family can successfully navigate this is defense in depth. It's by having tools that make it easier and create the space for you then to do both the hard work but the privileged part of parenting. Because you've got to have conversations early and often. You have to set examples for your kids, right? It's very, it's very hard to tell your kids not to have devices right. in the bedroom if they see that it's the last thing you look at when you go to bed. So. Our counsel broadly is bound technology in time and place, meaning your device should have a bedtime and it should wake up after you, meaning you shouldn't have devices at the dinner table or in a bedroom, right? You should have these things serve you and always have purposes around it. One of the tips that I've uh, received and what was helpful for us is put a little rubber band with a little uh, post-it note on your phone that says www. Why am I picking this up? Why am I picking this up right now? And what else could I be doing? And if you just do that for a few days, mm. it's amazing how you realize that you've just been habituated. You're yeah. bored. You're tired. You just go for it. So being intentional about how you use these things can really go a long way to make sure they actually work for you. Yeah. And and a lot of adults could probably do that as well, myself included. Oh. I, I have to say that I'm probably <laughs> guilty of that. Um, and, and so it is important, and, and that brings up such a good point, it's important to point out that uh, a child's first device brings a lot of other issues that have to be discussed. I mean, we talk about the external threats that are out there, and yes, that is serious, but things like how long they're able to use it, when and where they can use it, for what purpose. I mean, those are kind of the internal things that a child's first device brings up. And you really have to be very intentional right out of the gate about having those um, uh, conversations because, again, it's different when they have their own device. That's absolutely right. We, we recommend thinking about devices like you would think about a car. You would never hand over the keys to a seven-year-old. Right. And there are steps and progressions that they go through to learn how to responsibly handle it. And as they demonstrate responsibility, they get a little bit more freedom. The goal at the end of the day is to have your child be a healthy tech user because they are going to graduate someday and move out. Mine, not until they're 30, but at some point <laughs> they will get out. And at that stage, you want them to make good, wise decisions. Right. So you've got to think of it like a progression and equip them to do that. And it is hard. It is. I mean, to your point, you joked about how this is for adults as well. Like, right. I come at this with a lot of humility. I'm making mistakes left and right. But as long as you're directionally nudging them along, and the only the last thing I'll say on this point is this. I think a lot of kids get it. These devices aren't making kids happy. All the data out there suggests that 
Um, the anxiety, the depression that teenagers are feeling in unprecedented levels today stems from their devices. They know it, and they themselves want to figure out how to actually be happy. So yeah. I think a little nudging from parents, they'll always fight you, inevitably. But uh, if you can kind of provide that message, even if you get an eye roll, it really does make a difference. Yeah. And, and one last point, I think this is something that uh, quite often goes overlooked. It's also probably a good idea to have the talk about not being the perpetrator of bad behavior on the Internet. I mean, we all want to think that our kids are angels and would never do something like that. But for every kid that gets bullied online, for example, someone is doing the bullying. Yeah, and kids are still trying to figure out how to navigate these things. And I'll give you a small example. When I grew up, uh, my parents taught me how to use the phone. You don't call someone after 9 p.m. When right. someone calls, you say, this is the Clifford household, whatever. Yeah. Nobody is teaching our kids how to use Facebook or Snapchat. Or even if I did figure out Facebook, they're already off to Discord or something like that. So it's kind of the wild, wild west. And peer pressure predominates. And there are impulses. Look, there's always been peer pressure, but it's never been unchecked and constantly on like it is today thanks to social media and our devices. Yeah. So taking the time to not only equip your kid to withstand that, giving them the bricks, they need time away from this, but then also really working with them. And I think the, the thing a lot of parents do that's very helpful is um, sit down and go through some of the stuff with your kid. Why Johnny say this? What, you know, what, what's going on there? Well, yeah. How do you think he could have said it better? Yeah. Give them the example so that they can go for it. Yeah. And again, all of this is not to scare parents away from the internet and digital devices and uh, even, you know, not trying to say, don't give your kids their own device. Uh, there will come a time when it is appropriate uh, for every kid, uh, but rather to make sure that we are doing so responsibly and safely. Sean Clifford is the founder of Canopy, and you have more information information about uh, your services, your platform uh, on the website, right? That is correct. Canopy.us. You can learn more about the technology and then also just some guidance on how to be a parent in this crazy digital age. We could all use some advice in that department. Uh, Sean, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Have a great day. Well, the clock is ticking, Christmas right around the corner, and joining us this morning is Nicole Feliciano, founder and CEO of Mom Trends and author of Mom Boss, Balancing Entrepreneurship, Kids, and Success, with her top tips for stress-free gift-giving in these final days of the holiday season. Nicole, thanks very much, first of all, for joining us. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you, and I am this is this is the time of year when it's my job to shine and make your life easier. <laughs> so now, I, obviously, the the first uh, question we always ask. I'm going to switch this up. First thing we always ask uh, is, you know, what do you get for the the person who is the hardest uh, on your list to buy for? Let me switch that up and ask you, who is the easiest person to please on your gift list? Well- it's not a person. It is my faithful dog. He <laughs> is such a joy and he, he brings me so much joy and he does have a stocking and we um, always put treats in there. We love the origin high protein dog biscuits. They are the most premium biscuit in the category. And I love that I understand the ingredients. When you look at the packaging, you'll see that 90% of the protein is from animal ingredients. So we use them for everyday training treats. They're little heart shapes. They're super cute. Um, but we'll also be putting one of the four flavors in his stocking. So 
he loves them. He deserves them. He's going to be wearing some antlers. Um, so <laughs> more, more treats should be coming his way. Um, and you can find out about Origin at originpetfoods.com. Um, by the way, we were uh, speaking of Origin. We were uh, talking about the uh, survey that they uh, had out uh, just the other day, talking about how everybody feeds the dogs scraps uh, during the holiday gathering from the table. And uh, that a lot of that stuff is not necessarily healthy. This is healthy stuff. So you can treat your dog. Uh, and know that you're not doing him any harm. What about the the kids? Uh, you know, obviously they're kind of the center of the the whole holiday celebration. What have you got for last minute gift ideas, especially for those who may be stumped on uh, how to round out the kids' uh, gift list? Well, we love unplugged play at Mom Trends. For the past decade, we've been focusing on toys that don't have to be plugged in or require batteries. And Goliath has some wonderful options for the holidays. One of my favorites is a new game called Beware the Bear. Uh, it's really easy to set up. It's a little pop-up game. So ages preschool and up can play. Awesome price point, $20 and under for these toys. Um, you can see the full selection at goliathgames.us. But all of the things that we're talking about don't require batteries. So easy to set up. You know, you give the gifts, they unbox it, and they can start playing immediately. Um, it encourages independent play with their friends. But I tell the adults to always get involved in the fun as well. Um, your kids are definitely going to remember that you were the fun parent if you join in with them. Absolutely. And uh, we always like to include a, a handful of unplugged gifts this day and age. Uh, we've got so much electronics. It's always nice nice to uh, get back to basics uh, on that. What about everybody else who, at this point, the, the folks who are left on the list are probably the ones that are the toughest to buy for. What else do you have for those folks who you know may fall into that category? So my suggestion is don't buy something, make something. So you've got some holidays coming up. The kids are going to be out of school or they've got those half days. Get them in the kitchen, and we've got some fun recipes to share from the Blueberry Council. They say, you know, we can all use a boost of blue at the holiday season. And I found these recipes at blueberries.org, and I made a batch of blueberry chocolate-covered pretzels and then some blueberry Ooh. fudge pie. And then I separated them into cellophane bags, wrapped them with a colorful bow, and then Blueberry Council has also given us a downloadable gift tag that you can put on cardstock and then attach to the gifts. So we make those in batches, keep them in the refrigerator, and then you've got a great hostess gift that's ready to go. They're perfect for the dog walker, the piano teacher, mm -hmm. the teachers in your life. Um, and they don't have to worry about finding a place for something because they're edible, which is great. There you go. Instead of having a blue Christmas, we'll have a blueberry Christmas uh, this year. Uh, anything else to help de-stress the, the holidays? Well, I'm really promoting DIY wrapping paper this year. So get a big roll of brown craft paper. You can find it at just about any craft store or a big box store as well. Um, roll out about six feet of it, tape it to the floor, get the kids some markers, some stamps, some crayons, and have them color. They can trace their hands. They can write their names out oh, cool. um, and have them go to town on this and, and then turn it into wrapping paper. So you've got an eco-friendly, creative, and affordable option for your gift wrap. And it will definitely be unique. It will stand out under the tree. Nobody else will have the same wrapping paper. You know that for sure. That's great stuff. Uh, again, Nicole Feliciano is uh, founder and CEO of Mom Trends, author of Mom Boss, Balancing Entrepreneurship, Kids, and Success. 
with tips for a stress-free gift-giving holiday season. Where do we get more information, Nicole? You can follow me on social media at MomTrend or head to the website MomTrend.com. Nicole, thanks very much for taking the time. And again, happy holidays. Happy holidays to you. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. Not a whole lot of uh, stuff here in the broken news today, but it is definitely quality over quantity. Item number one. A Jacksonville, Florida woman told police that she gave her boyfriend just enough poison in his lemonade to shut him up. (laughs) I wasn't trying to kill him. I just wanted to shut him up. Just enough poison to shut him up. A report says uh, she later called law enforcement so he wouldn't die. There is that. She actually called law enforcement because she didn't actually want him to die. Just wanted to shut him up. Uh, Detectives uh, say uh, Alvis Parrish put a uh, drug of some sort in the lemonade of uh, her boyfriend, William Carter. Ms. Parrish also uh, wrote wrote out what she had done in a notebook. So there is uh, actual evidence Uh, of her uh, poisoning her uh, boyfriend. She is now facing uh, charges of uh, poisoning food or water with intent to kill or injure. But she insists she was not trying to kill him. She just wanted to shut him up. (laughs) Give him just enough to shut him up. Uh, Everywhere. Now, there are are women who are saying, I can relate to that. (laughs) I I get it. Yeah. Uh, This uh, could be our... Dumb criminal of the day. We actually have two candidates for the award of dumb criminal of the day. Uh, This is uh, in Delaware. Um, I'm not sure exactly where in Delaware, but it's a small state. It really doesn't matter. Uh, 44-year-old McRoberts Williams is accused of robbing a bank and then immediately depositing the money into the bank's ATM right outside. (laughs) Uh, The Delaware State Police say uh, Mr. Williams uh, handed a teller at the Wells Fargo Bank a note about the robbery (laughs) and then was given an undisclosed amount of money. Afterward, he allegedly exited the bank and deposited the money outside (laughs) in the bank's ATM Uh, Into his own account. (laughs) He then attempted to uh, get away by running uh, into a nearby store where he was arrested without incident. (laughs) How did they catch me? How did they how did they figure it out? (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Uh, So that's. uh, so that's candidate number one for the dumb criminal of the day. Uh, and if you think that's bad, how about this? In Bellevue, Washington, our other candidate for dumb criminal of the day, a 23-year-old man uh, whose uh, name is not given in this report. So I guess we can't give him the dumb criminal of the day award because we don't know his name. Uh, but a 23-year-old man was arrested um, You'd say he was a few cents short of a dollar or more accurately, a few tires short of a getaway car Uh, arrested on Tuesday after uh, police responded to a report of a theft at a car dealership. The man attempted to flee 
with his <laughs> with his own car still up on jacks. <laughs> the man was accused of stealing tires off of a black Dodge Challenger and then uh, driving across the street and attempting to put the tires on his own Dodge Challenger. So he just wanted to upgrade the tires, the wheels, on his own car. So he steals the tires off of one car, drives across the street, and attempts to put them on his own car. When police arrived, the man jumped into his car to flee... But since his car was up on jacks to swap out the tires, he wasn't able to go anywhere. <laughs> he was arrested without further incident. <laughs> so there you go. Those are the candidates for the dumb criminals of the day. I think you you really can't go wrong with either one of those. I think that we, we have co-winners of that award today. And finally, in the broken news this morning, and again, I think a lot of parents can probably relate to this story. Out of Sydney, Australia, a four-year-old boy left his family gobsmacked after ordering more than $1,000 worth of gelato on a food delivery app, including a personalized birthday cake and tubs of his favorite flavors. (laughs) Christian King used his father's phone to order $1,139 worth of gelato and cakes from the Gelato Messina restaurant on Uber Eats. His his father, Chris, had given his son his phone to keep him distracted while he was watching his sister's uh, touch football match. (laughs) Here, keep keep yourself busy. I mean, what parent hasn't done that? Give their phone to their kid. Here, keep yourself busy. His son told him that he had something on the way. <laughs> when he gave the phone back, we've got something on the way. But uh, Chris didn't didn't either didn't believe him or didn't think much of it until Uber Eats showed up. The delivery driver showed up <laughs> with eleven hundred dollars worth of gelato and a personalized birthday cake. <laughs> Uh, his uh, his wife, who was at home at the time for the delivery, uh, called her husband, and that's the uh, moment he realized what had happened. <laughs> Again, what parent can't relate to that? There you go. Uh, that is the broken news this morning. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Did you know that a donation of only $1 can provide up to six meals for a family? I'm Tommy Harner, CEO of West Ohio Food Bank, and with your support, we can bring food to areas in need. Fresh and nutritious food like fresh fruits and vegetables, dairy, and protein. As we team up with our partner agencies, we are working harder than ever at our mission of ending hunger together. If you'd like to volunteer, donate, or host a food drive, contact us through our website at wofb.org. This message provided by WFIN. Now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. I think we have all gone through our lives believing that our favorite comic book superheroes are invincible. But think again. A new study of superheroes and their lifestyles shows that many of them 
will most likely suffer from chronic health conditions in their old age. <laughs> this is a legitimate research people uh, research paper. Uh, researchers in Australia concluded that in the real world, these powerful characters are more prone, in many cases, to dementia, life-changing physical injuries, I can certainly see that, and disability. Uh, eventually, because they're because of their exposure to loud noises, air pollution, and head injuries. For example, I say the Incredible Hulk's heart problems, excess weight, and near constant anger means that he is at risk from a range of chronic diseases. Uh, the uh, traumatic childhood of the character Black Widow means that she is more likely to become physically and mentally ill later in life. And even Spider-Man, who is strong, flexible, and agile, uh, he should be less likely to fall when he is old, which is good. However, uh, his nightly crime fighting means he is unlikely to be getting the 8 to 10 hours sleep that experts recommend for individuals of his age. <laughs> Making Marvel's famous web singer more prone to mental health issues, obesity, and unintentional injuries. <laughs> so not the healthiest habits, as it turns out, these uh, superheroes. On the other hand, they also say that, that superheroes regularly engage in physical activity and exercise. Uh, that's certainly true. They exhibit a high degree of social cohesion and connectedness and show a positive or optimistic mindset, as well as psychological resilience. They demonstrate psychological resilience and a sense of purpose, all of which have been associated with healthy aging. So there is that. <laughs> the study is from the University of Queensland in Australia, and it is actually a published, this is a legitimate published study in the British Medical Journal, which, by the way, traditionally kind of lets its hair down, so to speak, for its annual Christmas issue, which is just out. <laughs> there you go. The scoop on our favorite superheroes and their mortality. You remember last year when we were still in the throes of the pandemic and many people decided to forego their traditional big Christmas gatherings because vaccines at that time still weren't widely available yet and we wanted to keep everyone protected as much as possible? As we reflected on a season of celebration that had taken on a melancholy tone instead, we spoke with Ohio Northern University Chaplain David McDonald about the lessons a COVID Christmas could teach us about the true meaning of the season. And we thought that that would be worth revisiting, given where we are today, this year. From exactly one year ago, December 16th of 2020, it is today's Throwback Thursday. Advent kind of has a melancholy tone to it, at least in the tradition of Advent. There's a uh you know, a long tradition of waiting and anticipation, but also a sense of sort of beginning to rec recollect the past year and beginning to think about, you know, getting our relationship with God and other people right as we as we enter into a new year. So 
really this Advent season, as we're spending it in, in COVID tide, as some of us are calling it, um, is, is uh, a time for us to kind of be more reflective and to begin to anticipate not just Christmas, but really in a, in a real sense, the time when hopefully very soon we'll all be able to be back together again. Even in the darkest time of the year, which is what we're in right now, we're about to get into that, um, you know, that uh, winter solstice. Sure. Um, and, which is a reminder that the light is coming back. You know, after the winter solstice, it's a good thing to remind ourselves every day after this, it's going to get a little bit lighter and lighter until we get to that spring equinox again. So it's no uh, accident, I think, that the church chose this time of year specifically for Advent, because it's a reminder through lighting of candles and Christmas trees and all the things that we do that bring light into our homes and into the churches and into the world. uh, It's a reminder in the same way that this is not going to last forever. Still, that, that hope is there, and we can, you know, hang our hat on that and and, and again, uh, the the uh, metaphor is not lost, but at the same time, it, it is difficult for a lot of folks uh, realizing, especially those who have been touched by this personally, maybe have lost a loved one, and it, it makes it very difficult to see the parallels uh, between what is normally a joyous season and the tremendous loss that we have experienced. Again, whether that's a personal loss, maybe it's the loss of a job, the, the loss that we've experienced over the past year. Again, that's a common theme in Advent. Is if you look at the tradition, um, you know, a lot of the scriptures during the Advent season come from the the Psalms and the Old Testament prophets, uh, reminding people that, um, you know, when Israel was in exile, uh, reminding the people of Israel that God was going to send a Messiah. For those of us who are Christians, we see Jesus as being that Messiah. But um, you know, regardless of, of how you see that, there's all of these beautiful lines and words coming into the Advent season from the scriptures that remind us that, yes, uh, life is difficult, life is hard, and we go through these kinds of seasons, um, and and we do lose people that we love, and, uh, not but, but and, God is in the midst of all of that and continues to love and to care, uh, and that there is hope for us uh, at the end of the day. And it also kind of brings to mind a lot of folks have speculated over the course of this whole pandemic that maybe this was uh, a sign that we need to sort of reevaluate our priorities, that all of a sudden all of these things that we think are important in our lives have been taken away or realigned or you know what have you. Uh, maybe that's a sign that you know, we have to think very hard and deep about what our true priorities are. Yeah, and I think if there's a silver lining that can come out of all of this, it is that people have actually begun to connect more. Um, I've, I've, I've connected with friends and family over Zoom over the last several months that I haven't talked to in years. And we've done that because we're sort of stuck at home mm-hmm. and we reach out to people. And so I think it is, it's sort of almost a, a paradox in that what, what, could drive us apart is actually driving a lot of people closer together. And it is causing us to reprioritize and say, what are the, what's the most important things for me? Yeah. What do I, what, what am I willing to give up in order to be with family and friends and the people that I care for? And uh, in many cases, uh, reconnecting and growing closer to your immediate family, your spouse, your kids, and, and so on. There's certainly been an awful lot of that. Yeah. And, you know, the, the home is at the center of, of a lot of different faith traditions. It certainly is for the Christian tradition. And 
Um, the more that we can use this season to connect with the people who are in our homes, our immediate family, I think we'll just continue to strengthen that sense of, of the holiness of the season for families, for communities, for society as a whole. Once again, from exactly one year ago, December 16th of last year, it is today's Throwback Thursday. A lot there to think about as we head into yet another COVID Christmas. And that will put a wrap on our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage. That is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow to finish up the week, it is the most wonderful time of the year college football bowl season new survey reveals the most obnoxious and worst behaved college football fans in america so until tomorrow morning that is good mornings for this morning now that you've had a good morning go on out make it a good day we'll catch you back here tomorrow